The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Welcome to this episode of Setting the Record Straight, a podcast of Reconstructionist Radio. My name is Russell Trawick, and I will be your host for today. I am the pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Alvin, Texas, and I look forward to this time. So let's get started with this podcast. The question is, does new always mean new? When we look at Scripture, does new always mean new? Well, John thirteen thirty four. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 1 Corinthians 11.25 says, In the same way, also he took the cup after saying this after supper, saying, This is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What I seek to look in here into here is the original language and ask. Does new mean new in regards to these passages of Scripture? Why is it, though, that with the first reference there's no controversy and complete acceptance of the continuity of Scripture? However, with the latter reference, there's much controversy, discussion, and division while assuming there is no continuity between the Old and New Covenant. Could it be that two different words are used in the original Greek? Could it be that the word new has two separate meanings, purposes, or applications? Well, my desire is not to quarrel about words, as 2 Timothy 2.14 tells us, or elementary doctrines, as Hebrews 6.1-2 says, or straining out, the, out of gnats while swallowing camels, like Matthew 23.24 says. But I do want to get to the heart of what is meant here. Let's take a look. In both of these scripture references, the word new is used. So first, let's get this shocker out of the way. In both references, this is the same word in the Greek language. In fact, there are only two words in the Greek for the English word new. But here they are the same word. The word is kainos, which according to Thayer's Greek dictionary means new as respect to form, recently made, fresh, recent, unused, unworn, as respects to substance of a new kind, unprecedented, novel, uncommon, unheard of. Uh, Similarly, Strong's Dictionary says, of certain affinity, new, especially in freshness, while, here it is, naos is properly so with respect to age, recently born, young, and youthful. There is another word for new, but it's the word naos, which has to do with someone who is recently born. Before we continue, though, I want to lay out a presupposition that's foundational to all I will discuss here. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, in no place is there an abolishment of the law, but Christ's fulfillment. In each of the scriptures that we will look at, we will be discussing the presence, the purpose, and fulfillment of Christ. The word for fulfill is not a word of empty meaning, but in the Greek is pleroa, which means to make full, to fill up, to fill to the full, to cause to abound, and so on. So I challenge you to apply this foundational presupposition from our Lord as you listen to the content to come. 
We are not ripping these scriptures out of context, but showing Christ's presence, purpose, and actual fulfillment in each of them. The new command to love one another is not new, but a fulfillment in Christ of the summation of the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, which reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself which is found in Luke 10, 27. So when our Lord says, As I have loved you, love one another, it is no longer just saying, You love God and love others, but that Jesus Christ is our standard and fulfillment of the greatest love, and therefore we ought to love one another like He loved us. 1 John four nineteen says, We love because He first loved us. And John 15, 13 tells us, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Ultimately, it's not a new command in the sense that it has never existed. But rather, Christ is the fulfillment of that command, for he is not only the giver of the command, but he came in the flesh to be the fulfillment of the command, our standard by which we may to love. In the same way, the new covenant in the Lord's Supper or communion is not a new supper with a total different, totally different meaning, but it's the fulfillment of Christ Jesus of what was instituted at Passover. Now this is where most people in the Reformed world will shut off because I'm attacking their supper, which is no supper at all. Firstly, because they claim it and make it their own. Full of mystic ritual and, and forget, it is the Lord's Supper. Secondly, it's no supper at all because they use some minuscule cracker or a bite of bread and a little sip of wine or grape-flavored juice or Kool-Aid, which cannot fill. Well, enough of the semantics. That, that is not the point of, I would like to make today. So where do we start? Well, let's start with a meal. What meal were Christ and his disciples taking? What meal did he send his disciples into town to prepare for? It was the first day... What was so special about this meal, they had to leave and have a meeting place. Matthew 26, 18-29 tells much of those details. It was the first day of the unleavened bread and celebration of the Passover meal. It was Passover, which we find the original command in Exodus 12, 1-20. Now, I'm not going to go completely into that, but you need to read it. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1-20. through tells us everything regarding the Passover meal. Let's look at it more closely as we look for His presence, purpose, and fulfillment of Christ. Well, why don't we just read what it says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on earth... On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel 
of the of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat of any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, and I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord through your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But whatever everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And the first month from the fourteenth day of the month of this day, through your generations a statue forever. And the month, first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats it, what is leavened, the person will be cut off the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Let's look more closely at this as, uh, when, as I said looking for the presence, the purpose, and the fulfillment of Christ. Well, first, Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is called the Word of God in John chapter 1, verses 1-16. through 16. Therefore, he instituted both the, both the Passover as well as the Day of Unleavened Bread in the six days that followed. So he is present in the institution of both. Second, his presence is in the meal itself. The first day of unleavened bread represented the first of seven days of removing the leaven, that which corrupts and transforms the dough. And it was to be a holy celebration. Therefore, when Jesus picks up the, the bread at the Last Supper, and when he had given thanks, and he broke it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was declaring that the leaven of the bread was like sin, and his body was, to, was given to remove the leaven of sin from the body. Therefore, it, it was a reminder that every time they ate the bread, they were to remember the sacrifice of Christ with thanksgiving. Don't forget the Lord's own words in John chapter 6, verses 47-51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He is the bread. Another aspect of the Passover meal was the lamb. And it's easy to get caught up in the lamb that was eaten, but it was not the meat, but the blood they were to remember. It was the shed blood upon the doorpost and the lintel that would cause the Lord to pass over their home. The Lord no longer passes over sin because of ignorance or willful sin, and really He never has. 
Because the ultimate sacrifice and propitiation is present in Jesus. The blood on the doorpost and the lintel was an act of obedience by the head of covenant households that covered the entire household, the wife, their children, their servants, and the foreigner who lived within their gates that held to the circumcision. Therefore, when Christ picks up the cup and says at the Last Supper, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He was pointing out two things when he said that. One, he is the final Passover lamb. And two, he is the fulfillment of the command to keep the Passover by the shedding of his blood and that there will no longer be any need to sacrifice again. The blood of Jesus covers the covenant household. And I'm not saying that taking communion saves anyone or represents that all who take are saved. We know that all the adults who took of the Passover meal in Egypt died in the wilderness because of the lack of obedience to follow God's command to take the promised land in Joshua 5, verses 2-7. through 7. This, The meal was not about salvation, but the one whom it represented and foreshadowed that would take away the sins of the world, which we find in John 1, 29. When Jesus speaks of the new covenant in His blood, He's not saying that the supper is abolished, but that He is the fulfillment of it. He didn't say this is a new meal, but rather this wine represents His blood. Why is that important? Because they were not to eat meat with blood in it or drink the blood of animals. We find that in Genesis 9-4, Leviticus 3-17, Leviticus 7-26-27, and Leviticus 17-10-14. Therefore, you can understand the confusion and conflict in John chapter 6, going on in verse 52 and 58, when Jesus said the Jews, it says, the Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. See, the wine represented the blood of Jesus that would take away the sins of the world once and for all. And I know this might upset my Baptist, evangelical, and even some Presbyterian brethren. And I make them even think that I scorned their supper. But it is not their supper. It is the Lord's Supper. It doesn't serve to represent their doctrine or their symbology of the elements contained or any other mystic practice they may summon. But the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Otherwise, we take that which is the Lord's and exchange it for an idol of our own making. When we look at both of these passages of Scripture regarding the new command and the new covenant, they make sense in respect to the first aspect of Fred Thayer's definition in regards to form, being recently made or having a freshness to it. However, they do not make sense to say that either of use of the word new regarding the command or the covenant could be, to, could be said to be unprecedented or uncommon or unheard of when it comes to Christ's fulfillment of these rather than the abolishment of them. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? 
the GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. In closing, I want to give one more example of the word new and its application. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against him and entrusting uh, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for, for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is the same Greek word, kainos, which was used in both the other examples. If we believe the new covenant in His blood is radically something different, does that mean that as a new creation, with the old gone and the new have come, having come, there would be no more of the old? Now, I'm not talking about a change of desire regarding sin. For Hebrews 10, 26-27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of, expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume our adversaries. And we know that 1 John verses, chapter 3, verses 4-6 through 6 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Therefore, a good sign of regeneration is the lack of desire for and the practice of sin over and over again. There is evidence of self-control. See, yet we also must recognize the struggle with sin. In Romans 7, 7-25, Paul, wrote, who wrote the letter to the Corinthian church, says, What then shall we say, though the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would would have not known what it was to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive for apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to be? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it's no longer I who did it, but do it, but the sin who dwells within me. I want to stop here. Let's finish it. So I find that it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner 
uh, being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Is Paul being double-minded here? Is he saying contradictory things? Is there error in Scripture here? Can you see the path one can easily take with an improper interpretive principle when it's used? Paul goes on in Romans 8, verses 1-11 through to say, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh can't please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. For the follower of Christ, there is a real struggle with sin and flesh, but there is no condemnation. For if Christ is in us, although our physical bodies are dead because of sin, our spirit is alive because of Christ Jesus. We are a new creature, not because our physical body has been abolished and a new one is immediately given, but because the perfect salvific work of Christ Jesus. If we apply the principle of the new covenant here regarding the new creation or formerly with a new command, we get a very strange and contradictory interpretation. Would that mean until Christ gave the new command to love as he loved us, that the love for one another prior to that command did not exist? Of course not. But that's the whole point I have to make here today. New doesn't always mean new. It means fulfilled. And that fulfillment is not in your supper. It's in Christ's supper. It's not in you. The fulfillment comes only from Jesus Christ. God bless you and yours. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.